at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. I don't really have any desire to be a basketball coach. Uh, I don't know the game well enough to teach anybody. I wouldn't be any good at it. So there's really no appeal to me to try to coach any kind of basketball team. Peewee, high school, junior high, nothing. Never really uh, excited me in any respect, except for one aspect. I think coaching on the sideline during a game would be a ton of fun. Because at that point, like, most of the hard work is already done, right? If you've done your job coaching, you're no longer trying to implement things in the game unless you're uh, really in a tough spot and having to draw up a play. For the most part, you're just reacting to what happens. You're there. You're in charge. You've got to call a timeout every once in a while. But you're just kind of there. You react to a bad shot by yanking the shooter out, sitting him on the bench, making him think about it for a few minutes. You react to your team losing at halftime by taking them in the locker room and really ripping into them, just letting them have it for a few minutes because they didn't know what they were doing. You react to a bad call by, I don't know, grabbing a chair from the sidelines and throwing it across the court, getting teed up like Bobby Knight. That sounds fun. Just some good, clean basketball fun is all I'm asking for to be the head coach of a game uh, just during the game for a team. In today's text, we get to see Habakkuk's reaction to God's plan. And really the, the beginning of God's final reaction to Habakkuk's complaints. And within these reactions, I think we'll see three possible reactions that we might have when we feel like God has done wrong. When we feel like God has wronged us, when he's done something wrong, uh, just in general. So we'll see possible reactions when we feel God has done wrong. The first possible reaction we might have when we feel God has done wrong is to feel like we're in the right. Start in verse 1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Sometimes we might feel as if we are morally superior to God. My first read, my initial instinct when reading that verse that I just read is to head that direction. This verse to me, whenever I read it, feels like Habakkuk has presented his complaints. He's frustrated by God's answer. He's confused how God could do something like this, like the answer that he's gotten front back from God. And then I read this verse, and it sounds to me like Habakkuk thinks he's backed God into a corner. I've said what I have to say, so now I'll take my stand up closer to you to make sure that I can hear your answer. And up there, I will wait for your answer. Let's see what you have to say for yourself, God. I'm so sure that I'm right. I'll keep thinking about my rebuttal even before you respond. I'll think about my answer that whole time. My initial read of the verse is to head that direction. That's kind of how it feels whenever I read it in English. But further study this week showed me that that's actually not quite right. That's not the way Habakkuk is responding to God. I do think Habakkuk feels he's in the right. I think he thinks he has a point, And he's legitimately struggling with the, the answers to his questions. 
So the substance, yes, is mostly the same between what I just said and what Habakkuk is saying in the verse. But the tone, the presentation behind it, the attitude, I think is actually very different from what I just presented. God, I've said all I know to say. You've heard my complaints. So now I'll come before you. I'll go to the place where I'm most likely to hear from you. And up there, I'll wait for your answer because I know you have to have one for what you're doing. You have to have a good reason. And I'm so sure that I'm right about that. I'm so sure that you have a good reason that I'm even preparing myself now to answer you when you reply. To defend myself when you rebuke me for daring to be so bold as to question you. Do you see the difference there? The, the substance is really the same. The text is really the same, what we read in verse 1. But when we understand that this is Habakkuk supplicating himself before God, rather than bowing up to him, I think it changes things. Habakkuk is humbly approaching God rather than being boldly defiant. And he's eagerly looking for a justification from God rather than sarcastically waiting for God to justify himself. He expects an answer, so he's looking for one. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me. He's looking out for a response. He thinks God's response might be to chew Habakkuk out for daring to question God's plan. So Habakkuk's bracing for impact. Do you remember in the Bible where uh, God first answers Job at the end of all of Job's questions toward the end of the book? Job 38, the first three verses says this. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Uh-oh. God is rebuking Job for daring to think he might know better than the one who laid the foundations of the earth. Those questions that God is about to ask Job, those are scary questions. Those are you walking in the door after curfew, where have you been type questions. Job isn't about to have a fun experience. And Habakkuk here is bracing. He's looking out for what God will say to him. But the underlying reason he's nervous about God's response is because he still trusts that God has a justification for what he's doing. He still trusts that God has a plan, that he's good. That Habakkuk shouldn't even have enough doubt to question God in the way that he has been questioning him. He's looking for a justification from God, knowing that God has one. He's not asking God to provide one as if Habakkuk already knows better. As if God doesn't have anything to say for himself. So that's why he has to start working on his answer now. I will look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. He's so sure that God is going to say something to him which silences him. That the prophet had better start preparing to justify himself when those tables inevitably turn. He's expecting a rebuke. He's bracing for it. And he's preparing an answer so that whenever God asks, how dare you, Habakkuk has something to say. His posture, his response is much more faithful than the the possible response that we might have had in that same instance. It's much more faithful than the response that I initially mistook Habakkuk's for. 
Well, he does in some sense feel as if he's in the right. He's therefore asking sincerely. He's not so sure of himself that he no longer believes God has a good answer to his questions. And that brings me to an important point that I think we have to pause on for a moment. Habakkuk has asked, among other things, among other questions, how can God be good and also evil things happen? How can God be good and also evil exist? That's kind of the underlying question behind everything that Habakkuk has been asking God. The the foundational question he keeps coming back to is, God, you are good, and yet this is about to happen. Help that make sense for me. And I'm sure everyone in this room has either asked that question ourselves, or at least knows someone who has, someone who does. You might hear it when you're talking to an unbeliever and they say, I just don't think a good God would do that. I don't want to serve or love a God who allows kids to get cancer, who allows AIDS to exist, who allows wars to happen. You know, Christians say God is good, that God is all knowing, God is all powerful. And yet all these bad things still happen. So that must mean that therefore God is not actually good. That he doesn't actually know what to do. Or maybe he isn't actually powerful enough to stop that evil. So whatever way, whatever answer you might have for that, Christian, I'm out. I'm not worshiping that guy. I'm not worshiping a God like that. And I think we do have an answer to that basic question, which I'll get to in a second. But I want to think about the question itself for a second. Do you notice what's happening here? When someone thinks that way, when someone asks those kind of questions, they're approaching this whole thing as if they are morally superior to God. As if they are the final arbiter of what is good and what is bad. Of what should and should not happen. Of who should and should not be worshipped. Look, I think we need to have these conversations. We need to be prepared for them because they're real questions. They're asked by real people in the real world. And very often they are sincerely asked. It's not always a gotcha. So I think we need to have an answer to this question. But whenever we zoom out for just a second, I think it is utterly laughable for a human being to think that we might possibly be morally superior to God. To think that we might have the moral high ground in relation to the God of the universe. There is not a person in this room who hasn't done objectively abhorrent, terrible, evil things. There's not a single one of us that gets by with that. Every one of us, the nicest, the seemingly most pure, the one who is now following Christ and setting the example for everyone else in the entire room, there is a time, there are still times, When they do that which is evil, when they are evil, when they have those moments, we may be able to lecture other sinners like us about morality, other human beings. But the one who invented, the one who based our morality on his own nature and character, he doesn't get hit by those bullets. We are not morally superior to God. So ultimately, we have no grounds to question his designs. Who are we to judge? We weren't there when he laid the foundations of the earth. We've got nothing where it comes to that. There's no one in here who is good enough to turn to God and say, how could you do that thing? 
we don't have the capability to do that. And I think it's right that we recognize that. Nevertheless, though, we can't just duck that question forever. We can't say, well, who are you to ask that question and then ignore the question itself? For ourselves and for others, we have to have an answer to the problem of evil. The question of why do bad things happen? Why does evil exist? And the the clearest way that that question is usually posed, the clearest way that someone asks that question, is really, whenever you boil it down, to say that four statements can't be true at the same time. Statement one, that God is perfectly good. Statement two, that God knows everything. Statement three, that God is all-powerful. And then statement four, evil exists. Most people, whenever they're asking that question, they would say, if you have an only good, a knowledgeable God who can do anything, then evil would never happen. Then evil wouldn't exist. That the the existence of the fourth statement nullifies at least one, probably all three of the other three statements. Yet as Christians, we would say all four of those are true, right? God is perfectly good. God does know everything. He is all-powerful. And yet, we can't deny the existence of evil. So, how does that work? How can that possibly be true? Well, the quickest way, without getting into a whole seminar, a whole lecture, is to say that the existence of evil doesn't prove that God isn't actually all-good, that he isn't actually all-wise or all-powerful. That fourth statement doesn't have to nullify the other three if we accept the possibility that a fifth statement may also be true. If we accept the possibility that God has created a world that now contains evil, and he has a good reason for doing that. If that statement is true, then all four of the other ones are just fine. If that statement is possibly accurate, then the other four can also possibly be accurate. That statement is true. We have no problem saying the other four can be true at the same time. And I get that that answer might not be ultimately satisfying for you. You might not hear that and go, oh, wow, great. You solved it. Perfect. Now I can sleep better at night knowing that there's a possibility that this fifth statement is also true. That might not be your initial reaction. I certainly don't think the answer is going to convince on its own someone who's angry with the God that they say they don't believe in. It's not going to convince them that he's worthy of their worship. But I do think that that answer is enough for we who are faithful to rest in that faith. For we who believe to to face a world filled with all kinds of evil. To continue worshiping the God who does all he does for a good reason. So Habakkuk's questions which don't really get clearly or satisfyingly answered in the text, I think they can and do have answers. And we'll see some of that as we go throughout the rest of the book. We might not know what all of these answers are. We might think that we would have a better way of doing things. But God has answers to our questions, and his answers vindicate his actions, whether he he reveals those answers to us or not. We just have to trust that that's true even when we might react by wishing it was different, even when we feel like we're in the right, like we've got a point. And that brings us to the second possible reaction we may have when we feel God has done wrong, which is to wish for a different outcome, to wish that it was different. We may wish that things weren't the way that they are. Verse 2, 
And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. Even though we wish for a different outcome, notice what God tells Habakkuk to do. Write the vision. God doesn't ask Habakkuk for input on his plans. He doesn't say, you know what, Habakkuk, you've got a pretty good point here. What would you do in the same instance if you were God of the universe? His response to Habakkuk is, write the vision. God does what he is going to do. Habakkuk, with all his questions and wrestling, even all of his faithfulness, which we see over and over throughout the book, is still just the messenger. Habakkuk is just God's stenographer. It doesn't matter whether Habakkuk wants a different plan, whether he wants a different vision or not. God has got the plan, and Habakkuk merely has the pencil. So God tells Habakkuk to write the vision that God has given Habakkuk. But what vision is that? says, write the vision. Well, which vision? What vision? Is it what we've already read in Habakkuk 1? Is it the, the following verse or two, but just that? Verse, just verses 4 and 5? Is it all of God's response through the end of chapter 2? Is it the entire book of Habakkuk? The whole thing, whenever he's finally finished. Well, we don't know exactly. We don't have a clear and perfect answer for that. It certainly, it definitely includes verses 4 and 5, which we'll get to and discuss in a couple weeks. And I think it likely also includes the rest of chapter 2. I mean, he says, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, plural. Surely that just verses 4 and 5 could fit on one. So I think you've got to go at least through the end of chapter 2. But I think it probably also includes what God has revealed in chapter 1. Because you've got to have the context for those verses. For that chapter 2, it's the second chapter after the first. You have to have what God has already revealed, that the Chaldeans are coming to take God's people into exile. So what God means when he tells Habakkuk to write the vision is that what he says, what he has revealed to Habakkuk, is absolutely what's going to happen. Even if Habakkuk might have wished for something else, for something more clear, Something with fewer trials for Habakkuk and the people of Judah. In this instance, God is going to do what God is going to do. He's not changing his mind. Even after the prophet asks him to reconsider. It's not changing. It is written on tablets. Maybe wood, but probably of stone. This vision, what God has revealed, is going to be chiseled into a hard surface so that everyone who reads it knows this is what it says. It's not changing. It's not being edited. It's not being scratched out. You can't exactly erase it once you've etched it into stone. It just is what it is. Just like the Ten Commandments given to Moses to give to the people of Israel. They were put on tablets. So everyone who read them knew that they would never be changed. As long as the stone still had that writing, the law was still in effect. It's not going anywhere. Which makes an important point here. God is not at our command. He's not our errand boy. He's not Santa Claus. He's not our butler. He's the almighty God and Lord of all creation. He doesn't get ordered around by people like you and me. So if anyone has ever told you to just pray harder to get what you want, if you have ever believed that you can achieve your dreams or your goals by taking specific steps so that God will do your bidding, 
If you've thought that you could speak your plans into existence just by saying them out loud, then I've got some bad news for you. God is not at your command. He's not magic. You don't just say the right words in the right order like a spell and expect that what you want is what's going to happen. He's not beholden to your plans for your life because he has his own plans for your life. And like Habakkuk, sometimes his plans for our life that we see, that we experience, we might wish that there was a different outcome. We might pray for what we want. We might believe in our hearts that this is what's best for us and for God's glory, for him to do what we asked him to do. We may have faith that that's what's going to happen. And yet the God who is not at our command has every right to at any time say, no. I've got my plans. I'm doing what I'm doing. That's it. It's the end of the discussion. And I get that that might be disconcerting. That may not feel very comforting, right? It may even lead you to think, well, then what's the point of praying? What good is it for me to try to follow God's will and plan for my life if he's just going to do what he wants to do anyway? Maybe you hear this and even think, well, that stinks. What do you mean I can't ask him for stuff and he's going to give it to me? You're telling me he might decide to give me what I feel is like the short end of the stick? What I feel isn't a very good deal? What I feel sounds like a lot of pain and heartache and trial and persecution and temptation? That doesn't sound like God is giving me what I need. You're telling me he's not going to change his mind even if I pray about it? That I could do all those things and he might just say, no, that's not even polite. How dare he? But if that's you, let me point out that though I think the judgment is part of the vision written in stone, the coming promise is written in stone as well. When God says in verse four that the righteous shall live by their faith. That is written in stone just as the judgment is. That is just as immovably etched in that same tablet as the judgment was. When he says the Chaldeans are going to get what's coming to them in the rest of chapter 2, that's in the same tablet as well. When he says that his justice is going to come, woe to those who receive it. That's there. The judgment is certain in God's plan, but so is the hope here. The salvation here. He may not be at our command, but his plans are better than ours. He's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. According to the power at work within us. Ephesians 3.20. So while he may not do what we want him to do. While we may wish for a different outcome. A different journey along the way to get to that destination. What he's going to do is what we need him to do. What results in his glory and our good. And for Habakkuk and his readers, what they needed in this moment was for God to give them both a warning and a refuge. And I think that's what God is meaning by the end of verse 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. Like several other phrases in Habakkuk, it's not easy to know what God is saying here. But I think there's a twofold meaning here in that phrase. So he may run who reads it. I do think it's a warning. 
I mean, what would be your first reaction to the prophet of God saying that he was judging Judah by sending the Babylonians to put them in exile? You would bail. Judah would be the last place that you would want to be. You'd get out of there as fast as you, as fast as you could. You may even run when you read that message, that vision. So God, I think, is giving a warning to his people, even in the midst of their wickedness. Even in the midst of him judging them, I think he's also warning them. He's throwing them a lifeline by letting them know what's coming. That's why he told Habakkuk in the first place. The prophets didn't tell their prophecies to their pillows. They told the people. They spread the word to everyone around. God is warning his people, run when you read this vision. But I think that phrase, so he may run who reads it, also by the wording and the context, shows that he is giving them an idea of where to run to. Toward him. To God's safety and refuge. When he says the righteous shall live by his faith in verse 4, he means it. The righteous one before God will live by his faith in God. The one who runs to God in faith actually receives not the death and judgment that is coming, but life. Even if he were to die at the hands of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, he will still receive his life from God. And that idea of running to God as a refuge, that's all throughout Scripture, all through the Psalms and the prophets. But here simply is Proverbs 18.10 says this, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. So God gave them a warning and a refuge when he told them to run. When he told Habakkuk to write the vision, to make it plain. Look, we may want a different outcome, but we should trust in the midst of God's plans, in the midst of God's outcomes, there is still provision And love for his people. There is still life for the righteous. And that brings us to the the final possible reaction we may have when we feel God has done wrong. We must wait for his promises. Verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. The vision of both judgment and hope and salvation was coming. It was set in stone. It would definitely happen. But it wasn't going to happen on that day. There was an appointed day, an appointed time, that the people would be judged. And that the righteous would live by his faith. There was an appointed time when the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, would win. And there was an appointed time when they would lose. God's justice was coming, but it wasn't coming immediately. But why the delay? Right? Why wait? What's the point of that? If God has this plan in place, if it's absolutely going to happen, then what's with all the tarrying? Why dilly-dally? Isn't it true that the the longer he waits to send the Babylonians, the longer he also waits to restore his people on the other side of that judgment? Waiting just kind of feels like a waste, doesn't it? It feels like we're just treading water for the inevitable to happen. 
And I think we may answer yes to those questions. We might initially think, yes, waiting is a waste of time. Why not do it now? But I think the parent of the child struggling in drug addiction may not see it that same way. I think the family with the aging dog doesn't see it quite that same way. Putting off the inevitable, the wait to cut off the child, to put down the dog, that's not a waste, I don't think. I think it's love. It's hope. It's giving every possible opportunity for the situation to improve. Yes, you may know exactly where it's heading. You may know what you'll eventually have to do. But out of love, out of mercy, really, you delay. And in a similar way, God waits to execute his justice. To both judge the wicked and save the righteous. And he waits out of love. Out of mercy. Whereas he actually knows the end. Different from us in our situations with our pets, with our children. We don't actually know what's going to happen. He does know what's going to happen. He has set an appointed time. He doesn't have to hope because of his own might. And he still yet tarries out of love and mercy for his people. 2 Peter 3 verses 8 through 10 says this. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. You see, the plan of God, where he will judge the wicked and save the righteous, when he will accomplish all of his promises, that plan delays out of mercy, out of the patience that results from love. However, although he is delaying his judgment of Judah and the Chaldeans out of mercy, although he exerts that same mercy toward us by delaying Christ's return now, his justice, his plans are still on their way. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, but it hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Don't fool yourself. Judgment and salvation are both coming sooner than you think. And they absolutely are coming. So you have to be prepared either way with what God has for you. And that is judgment because you are outside of Christ and therefore in sin and deserving of his wrath. Then that's what you have coming. If that is mercy and love and salvation because you are united to Christ by faith and repentance, then that's what you have coming. You have to be prepared for the justice of God, which is coming for you. Either against you or against Christ on your behalf. And with every passing second, his plans come nearer to fruition. If it seems slow... Wait for it. It will surely come.
It will not delay. The Chaldeans are on their way. So Judah had better heed the warning, had better run to God their refuge, even though we know they won't. And I think it's interesting here that God includes this focus on the timing of his vision, which he doesn't always do, particularly because we're pretty sure that the judgment comes within just a few years after Habakkuk is written. Maybe like 20 at the most. And I know we hear it, so wow, 20 years, it's a long time. And from a prophetic perspective, that's way faster than most of God's visions come about. Most of his prophecies come true. It's usually a much longer wait. So maybe the waiting here is less about the warning, less about the coming judgment, the Babylonians who are on their way. And maybe it's a little more about the, the salvation. That's also on its way, on the other side of that judgment. The rest of Habakkuk's vision. Maybe God is less trying to get those who won't heed his warning to listen, and more trying to comfort those who are waiting to receive his promises. For those to receive the salvation, which is on the other side of that coming judgment and pain. The righteous shall live by his faith. So if that life seems slow in coming, wait for it. The Chaldeans, the Babylonians, they will get their judgment. They will get their justice. They will receive God's wrath. But if that seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. So if you are someone who is waiting now, someone who feels like their life is filled with pain and heartache, with suffering and evil, If you think you have a legitimate complaint with God for how he's treated you. Or if you just wish that he had given you a different plan. A different outcome. You didn't deserve this cancer. You wanted to be more successful. Your family shouldn't have fallen apart. You wanted to have gotten married a long time ago. My encouragement to you is to wait. I know it's hard. I know it feels like you've already been waiting. But hold on just a little bit longer. Because if his promises seem slow, wait for it. The promises of salvation will surely come. And waiting matters particularly for us here. Because the it at the end of verse 3, wait for it, it will surely come. It will not delay. That becomes a he. We'll see more of this in two weeks when we look at verse 4 and how it takes on a deeper meaning in the rest of the New Testament. But even before the New Testament was written, as God's people continued to read and to study Habakkuk, they came to read the end of verse 3 as a promise not just about it, whether it would come, but rather about he, about God's coming promised one. About the Son of God who would come. If he seems slow, wait for him. Because he will surely come. He will not delay. We've spent most of this series through Habakkuk thinking about how to approach God. How to understand him in light of the evil we see and experience in the world. But this part, the end of verse 3, heading into verse 4. The beginning of chapter 2. We only really had one chapter of the coming evil and calamity. 
And now at the beginning of chapter 2 is when the narrative begins to shift. We go from fearing the coming judgment of God and bemoaning the evil we see to cheering the coming judgment of God. To rejoicing in the salvation that we see. And that salvation comes through the he that was promised here in Habakkuk. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, who came to reconcile all things to himself, to make peace by the blood of his cross. In that cross, we see the judgment of God against evil and sin. But we also see the love and mercy of God toward his people. Through that sacrifice, through that act that objectively from the outside would appear to have been great evil. Through that act... The righteous receive Christ's life by grace through faith. But all we can do now is wait. We wait for his promises to come to pass. We wait for his salvation. And we wait for the one who did eventually come to now come again. Although we might react to God's plans by feeling like we know better feeling like we're in the right, or maybe by wishing he would do things differently, wishing he had a different path for us. Ultimately, as we'll see in Habakkuk, the faithful response to God's plans, no matter what they have for us, is to wait for his promises to come to pass, even when those promises seem slow in coming. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the chance to to read your word with your people. To sing your praises with your people. To understand, know, love, and cherish your gospel with your people. Thank you for the plans you have for us, whatever they may be. Because we know no matter the route that we get there, they end in love and communion between you and your people. No matter what your plans may have been for the nation of Judah in this time, all those plans eventually led to the cross. All those plans eventually lead to the new heavens and the new earth. So help for us to react appropriately to your plans. Submission, love, faith, repentance... And the patience to wait, even when we don't know how long, even when we can't always see why we're still waiting, even when we wish we weren't, help for us to faithfully respond to you and your plans and to wait for that hope and salvation on the other side of judgment. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.